Welcome to the Bagwell Center podcast. This podcast features lectures and symposia hosted by the Bagwell Center for the Study of Markets and Economic Opportunity at Kennesaw State University. The Bagwell Center's mission is to provide a platform for an interdisciplinary study of the importance of markets and economic institutions in regard to resource allocation, entrepreneurial activity, economic prosperity, and improved human welfare. Through extracurricular outreach activities such as guest lectures, film screenings, workshops, fellowships, and reading groups, the Bagwell Center places an emphasis on educating students about the foundations of market institutions and examining the related impact of government policy in a mixed economy. For more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit coles.kennesaw.edu slash econop. Thank you very much, and I really appreciate you being here today. This is my first visit to Kennesaw State University. Beautiful campus, beautiful buildings, and I especially want to thank uh, Professor Timothy Matthews and Jamone Paul for inviting me to the campus. As you can see today, I'm going to focus on network economics and tomorrow at the research symposium on homeland security. I'm going to talk about what I call the new economics as it impacts the analysis of conflict and security. So I appreciate the opportunity to be here. So as you can see from the slides, oh, I wanted to also mention Eric Seller was a huge help to me in logistical issues. So thank you, Eric, uh, for that. Uh, just really made, made the trip smooth and logistical arrangements really smooth. So as you can see from the title slide here, the, the focus today is going to be network economics uh, in the study of conflict and security. And before I go through the details on this overview slide, uh, what, what I'm going to try to do, I know many of you probably or may have studied networks before, maybe in other classes, or if you're an academic, you've done some research on networks. My objective today is for those that may not be too familiar with network analysis to get you to kind of look at this area as something that's really important for a lot of, a lot of different reasons. And, perhaps an area that you'd want to further study. And I have some resources at the end that can help you do that. So I'm going to start out today, as you can see on the overview slide, with some examples of networks. And then I'm going to offer some principles of network analysis. But most of what I'm going to focus on are applications of network ideas, perspectives, concepts to conflict and security issues. And I have quite a range here running from genocides to civil wars to terrorism to cyber threats, even to alliances trade and reduction in interstate wars and information and misinformation across social media networks. So wide applicability of topics in the broad realm of conflict, security, and peace is offered to us by a network analysis. So let me turn to some examples of networks here. The, the, the image I have on the left was created by an individual. I don't know the individual's name, but the website where this graph comes from is uh, po posted here at the bottom of the slide. What this individual did is he, he said, I want to kind of come up with a graph, a visual representation of, of his friendship networks, his social networks. So he started with his high school friends. That's the red circles and the red lines connecting these different friends of friends and so forth. The, the red circles represent his high school friends and his connections to them and their connections to each other. The blue circles here represent this individual's college friends, his connection to them and their connections to each other. We see the yellow circles in here, and those represent this individual's girlfriend's friends and, and who those friends are connected to. Uh, the pink circles are this individual's academic connections at his university, and the violet-purple circles are his connections to academic colleagues outside the university. So he mapped out through his Facebook networks this kind of graph, and he put it on a T-shirt. If you want to go to that website at some point, you can actually buy a T-shirt with that image on it. It's an example of an individual using 
network software programming to create an image like this of his friendship networks. Now, the, the graph to the right is high school friendship networks based on a study by Moody. And what Moody was interested in, he, he looked at a high school that was well integrated. That is, if you look at kind of the aggregate data, what percentage of the school is made up of whites and African Americans and Hispanics and so forth, it would be a well integrated school. But Moody said, I want to look at what kind of friendship or social networks have have emerged uh, in, in that school. And, and so uh, he gathered data on the, the friendship networks in that school. And as you can see here, the white yellow circles represent friendship networks between uh, white students. The green circles represent friendship networks between African American students. And the pink uh, circles represent networks with Hispanic students. We have a well-integrated school in terms of the macro data, but when you look at the social relations at this intermediate level, what the network people call the meso level, we find that along friendship or social lines, it's not really that well-integrated. So Moody is using network analysis to point out the difference between what's going on among the individuals and at this middle level or meso level and what the aggregate data on school integration might say, and that there are some important discrepancies there. Now, the next slide here, you've probably heard in recent years that political relations in America have become more divisive or more divided, that there seems to be greater partisan politics and enmity out there. And there may be some evidence uh, of that based on network analysis by political scientists. So what we ha have here in the left graph is a network analysis of voting patterns for the 101st Congress in 1989-90. The blue represents the Democrats, the red represents the Republicans. Not surprisingly, the Democrats usually vote with each other, the Republicans usually vote with each other. But there's some overlap, there's some crossing of party lines and intermingling among the parties back in 1989-90. But when we fast forward to 2013-14, the 113th Congress, we see this kind of division between the voting patterns of the Democrats and the Republicans. We even see these two senators kind of crossing party lines more often than any other, Senator Collins from Maine and Senator Markowski from Alaska sort of serving as a kind of bridge role between the parties, but otherwise we see growing partisan politics, at least when we look at it from a network perspective. I don't know what the latest map would look like if we did you know, last year, this year, more recent years, but this pattern of a kind of growing fractionalization appears to be uh, prominent in data on voting patterns in the U.S. Congress. Now, we also, to turn in the direction of, of kind of security and insecurity and conflict, the United States and other nations over the past couple of decades have been moving in the direction of, of network-centric warfare. This is the idea that the land, air, sea, and outer space forces, uh, outer space assets, military satellites, for example, can be integrated in, in a network pattern so that you get better awareness of the battle space because the military service branch's assets are being networked this way. You can get a much more productive uh, military power from that kind of networking. Of course, you have to ask the question, are there vulnerable nodes in this network that could be exploited by a rival? But the United States and other countries have been moving toward more network-centric warfare with webs of connectivity between the military service branches and these assets. Another application that we see early on in 2002 is uh, Valdis Krebs, fairly shortly after the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks, Valdis Krebs gathered data on who these attackers were, who were these terrorists, and who were they connected to. And he came up with this network diagram of the 9-11 terrorist network. Now, this has since been modified, but what 
is important about this network is there are not that many links between these terrorist actors. We have much denser networks of social relations like that, that high school network that we saw earlier, uh, as well as that individual's uh, Facebook networks, much denser. Terrorist networks tend to be fairly sparse because they're trying to remain secret, makes it less likely they'll be infiltrated, and there's a lot of network analysis of terrorist organizations, and we'll see examples of that a little bit later. Let me turn now to some principles of network analysis. And I want to start out here in this slide with network actors and their links. And what we start out with in panel A are four, four individuals. I'm trying to get the technology to work here. We've got four individuals who are disconnected. This is kind of our standard microeconomic starting point, the theory of consumer choices. What is that one individual going to do in terms of buying products, for example. But when these individuals become networked, we have here in panel B, A and B establish a connection with each other, as do uh, C and D. These W parameters represent the weight or importance of this connection between these actors. Now, that link between A and B can allow the flow of substances. The substances that can flow across a network link include resources. Uh, it can include morale-boosting camaraderie. It can include information or misinformation. So things flow across these network links. Uh, and we have these, this flow of network links occurring here between uh, A and B, as you can see, and also between C and D. Now, when I turn over to, uh, I'm not sure why that red dot is doing what it's doing. We go to panel C, we have a chain network here, so more actors are coming into the network. Networks become much more productive in whatever they're trying to do. The more linkages they can get and the more substances that can be flowing through these network linkages. We have a circle network here in panel D, a star network where everybody's connected to A, and a complete network where everybody's connected to everybody else. Now you can have many different structures. These are six examples uh, that we have here in, in terms of uh, network actors and their links. Let me now turn to the idea of a structural whole. Uh, Jackson defines a structural whole is an absence of connections between groups. So we have two clusters here, two networks, cluster one and cluster two. Each cluster is a complete network unto itself. So we have information flowing between actors B, C, D, and E in cluster one, or resources or morale. Same thing with cluster two between actors F, G, H, and I. But we don't have any flowing of substances between these two clusters. And this is where if an actor comes in and fills this structural hole, as does actor A here, that actor serves as a bridge between other networks that were previously disconnected. And that bridge can be very powerful because now substances, whatever those substances may be, can flow between these two clusters where before they could not. So the idea of filling a structural hole is very important in network analysis. The other thing that we find, in, in, in certainly in the business world, but also among terrorist organizations, is the, the use of hubs and spokes networks. This can enhance the production of, of the business or, unfortunately, the terrorist organization quite dramatically. We also, this also gives rise to the small world phenomenon. Not quite sure why my red circle is doing what it's doing. That's where I left this morning. Uh, so we should be down in Atlanta by now. So we're down, should be down here in Atlanta. There we go. I'm not quite sure what's happening here. But let me try to trace through, if you can ignore the, if you ignore the bouncing red dot here. This is the FedEx hubs and spokes network. It, it's quite powerful for delivering packages all around the world. The major hub uh, that FedEx uses is in Memphis. But let's trace what would happen if you here in, in you know, northwest of Atlanta, uh, at Kennesaw State, you go to a FedEx store and drop off a package, it's going to go to Atlanta. 
It's then going to go to Memphis. If you're planning to send that package to a colleague in Seoul, South Korea, it's going to go from uh, Memphis to Anchorage over here, and then it's going to go to Seoul, South Korea, and then be delivered to the colleague maybe in the suburbs of Seoul, South Korea. This is amazing that you can overnight deliver a package in a small number of hops to individuals all the way over on the other side of the world. And of course, with email and the transfer, transfer of digital information data over the internet, these hops are, are very short and very quick. But what we have here is the small world phenomenon. What networks have done is, in a way, they, they, they have shrunk the world. So you can have, in a matter of a few hops, a package to a colleague in Seoul, South Korea by tomorrow. So that package starts in northwest, northwest of Atlanta. It then goes to the Atlanta hub. That's one hop. It goes to Memphis. That's two. It goes to Anchorage. That's three. It goes to Seoul, South Korea. That's four. And the package is, is delivered to your colleague. Five hops. Five hops connecting just about everybody in the world through this FedEx network. It's really quite extraordinary and immensely powerful for delivering packages. The other one I want to look at here, and I've fallen a little bit behind on my slides. I hope the red ball is going to go away, but we'll see uh, how that goes, is I want to turn to this idea of the centrality of an actor. Centrality is how important an actor is to a network's performance. And when we come to this idea of importance, you'll notice it's in quotes. Importance can be interpreted in a variety of ways on a network. How well connected is an actor in terms of direct connections? That's known as degree centrality. How well located is an actor in terms of connecting other actors? That's known as betweenness centrality. In that earlier diagram where actor A filled that structural hole between those two clusters, actor A had only two ties in that graph. Those are known as two degrees and would have very low degree centrality. But by serving as a bridge between those two, those, those two clusters, that actor A would have very high betweenness centrality and would be very important in that brokerage role sense. How well connected is an actor to others who are well connected? This leads to various measures of prestige centrality, a well-known one being eigenvector centrality. Then especially in regard to criminal organizations like terrorist networks or mafia organization or drug cartels, there's this concept of key player negative or KP neg. The idea is in a network setting, if you can remove one player from that network, have all the other remaining actors re-optimize, which player so removed would degrade the performance of that network the most? This has been worked out in these network models. It's known as the key player negative. Is it true if, we, if Osama bin Laden gets pulled out, that's going to degrade al-Qaeda the most relative to any other actor that might be pulled out? So this is a really important concept in the analysis of terrorist groups, of criminal organizations, and things of that nature. I now want to turn to some applications of network ideas to I, I, you know, quite a range of, of kind of conflict security issues here. And I'm going to start out here with the question, will the whole village go genocidal? I want to go back to 1994. Perhaps many of you have studied the 1994 genocide in which uh, hardline Hutu extremists exterminated somewhere between 500,000 and 1 million uh, Tutsi civilians. The horrible genocide played out over about 100 days. And one of the things that social scientists and genocide scholars have observed is that some of the villages in Rwanda became acceptant of genocide pretty much carte blanche. And other villages were, seemed to be quite resistance, resistant to accepting this genocidal program against the Tutsi. So I want to do a kind of network thought experiment here. We've got a hypothetical village 
In Rwanda, it's made up of 12 individuals. We're here in panel A. I'm going to start out with individuals 5 and 10 in this village as being hardline. They, they're, they're predisposed to be acceptant of carrying out genocide against the outed group. So we start out with those two individuals with that predisposition. Now what we want to look at is how through peer effects, the acceptance of genocide can spread kind of like a contagion or a virus through this village. I'm, I'm a little reluctant to use the red dot here, but I'm going to give it a shot. This is a key assumption, assume f equal 0.5. What that means is in this village, if at least half of a individual's neighbors have become acceptant of genocide, that individual be will become acceptant as well through peer pressure and peer effects. So let's watch what happens to this hypothetical village in Rwanda. What we notice here is individual one has three neighbors, one of which is hard line. That's below the threshold where the peer effect is going to matter. So individual one will stay in, in a state of not acceptance of genocide toward the outgroup. Same thing with individual two. But notice individual three here. Individual three has two neighbors one of which is acceptance of genocide. And so it meets the threshold of half. So in the next round over in panel B, we find that individual three will catch the contagion of genocide acceptance and become a hardliner toward the outed group. Let's look at individual four. Notice here that individual four back in panel A has one of its two neighbors that is acceptance of genocide. So the virus, the Peer, peer effect is going to spread to individual four in panel B. And the same idea is going to apply here to individuals six and seven. So what we're seeing in this village is the unfolding of genocide acceptance against the outed group. It's spreading like a virus, and an idea virus or an ideological virus spreading throughout the village. Unfortunately, the process does not end there. Notice now as we look at panel B that actor one still has three neighbors, but two of the three have become acceptant of genocide. So actor one in panel C will become acceptant as well. Notice in panel B that actor two has one of its two neighbors acceptant of genocide. So by panel C, uh, actor two catches the virus and becomes acceptant as well. And actor eight here, back in panel B, has four of its five neighbors acceptance of genocide. So the peer effect is going to catch actor A as eight as well once we get to panel C. And what happens here is this process continues, and the whole village becomes acceptance of genocide via the, the contagion of peer effects across that village network. Okay. But let's watch what happens when we go to the next slide. Something really freaky is going to happen when we go to this next slide. We're back to the original question on the previous slide. Will the whole village go genocidal? We have the peer effects threshold of 0.5. If half of an individual's neighbors have become acceptant of genocide, that individual via peer effects will become acceptant too. The only thing that's different now is instead of that hardline actor in the upper portion of the village being located at five, that hardline actor is located at four. That hardline actor said, I'm going to buy the house at fourth in Maine rather than fifth in Maine. That's the only difference. Everything else is the same. What happens? to the contagion of genocidal acceptance in this village, given what appears to be a trivial change in an initial condition, the answer is nothing happens. Nothing spreads. Acceptance of genocide does not take over. You can go through the analysis and kind of figure out that it's not going to spread to panel B or panel C or panel D like it did in the previous graph simply because the hardliner at location five instead bought the house at location four. That's freaky. 
a whole village can go accept in a genocide or not based on a seemingly idiosyncratic triviality. That's bizarre. What we're touching upon and what comes out of this kind of meso-level network analysis is we often see this concept of emergence. Emergence is the idea that we, we're, we're unable to look at what the story is for the individuals in that society and aggregate up to here's the macro outcome. We, we cannot do that usually or often because the aggregation from the individual to the macro outcome is mediated in that meso level by social connections, by networks. And those networks have a profound impact on what the individual incentives are and whether that leads to a macro outcome of complete genocide acceptance or no spread of genocide acceptance at all. Networks become really important for trying to figure out in Rwanda or in any other genocide, why is it taking off like a contagion in these villages here, but it's not moving at all in those villages over there? According to network analysis, it may come down to some idiosyncratic factors, and we gotta try to figure these things out, okay? So that's our first application. Let's look at a little bit here at another genocide, the Holocaust, and uh, there's a lot of growing network analysis, not, not in terms of formal models, but a, a growing awareness that to really understand what happened in, during the Holocaust with at least six million Jews killed and people from other groups killed during the Nazi Holocaust. How do you get a scaling up like that? You need network perspectives to really understand that scaling up. So we're seeing more of that kind of analysis come out of the genocide studies literature in a book, for example, like Networks of Nazi Persecution. Here's a tentacles of Nazi persecution graph. It's a network model. It's simplified. We have Commander One with a flow of substances, resources, morale, information going to Commanders Two, Three, and Four. Those Commanders Two, Three, and Four are in charge of carrying out genocidal acts in the villages that they are assigned to. The, the W uh, parameters reflect the weight or importance of the substances that are being carried across these networks. What we find when we do network models, even of relatively simple network structures like this, is that that network, because it's network, can be extremely powerful relative to what you would get if these uh, actors operated as individuals alone. Networks convey power and productivity in ways that are amazing in terms of their scaling up properties. The other thing that may be hard to see in the back is I've got some of the W terms up in village B set to zero. Those are resistance organizations that come in and they, they disrupt the network ties between those carrying out uh, genocidal acts against the victim group. So what you get are tentacles of persecution and atrocity, but those are also met with tentacles of resistance and rescue organizations who are also networked. And so you need to think about the meta-network when you get into genocide studies and what happened during the Holocaust in Nazi-occupied Europe. Here's another use of network perspectives, network analysis, uh, in the Holocaust. This is a study by Braun. And what, what Braun is looking at is the evasion and non-evasion of Jews in the Netherlands. And the, the map's a little bit rough, but the blue circles represent Jews in the Netherlands where they were located, where they lived, their home addresses, that were unable to evade the Nazi roundups and they were sent off to concentration camps and extermination camps. The pinkish circles represent Jews who were able to evade. And this leads to a question, why were some Jews unable to evade and why were other Jews able to evade? That's the question that Braun asks in this study. He's got a lot of data on what happened to Jews in the, the, the Netherlands during the Holocaust. And here's how he approaches this. He uses network perspectives to try to unpack this puzzle. Uh, he 
focuses on churches in the Netherlands and the issue of rescue and non-rescue of Jews. He defines this idea of minority churches and he claims that minority churches were far more likely to rescue than majority churches. And he, he asks the question, why is that? First of all, minority churches are Protestant churches in Catholic-dominated areas, Catholic churches in Protestant-dominated areas, and Orthodox church churches everywhere because the Orthodox were in the minority relative to the Catholics and the Protestants in the Netherlands. Okay? And so what Braun does to try to unpack this puzzle is he looks at the network characteristics of rescue and uh, rescue groups are criminal organizations. To the Nazis, the you know, churches that rescue are criminal organizations. So they have to be secret and they have to have low density. They can't have too many network links or they're gonna be infiltrated or discovered. That's the first characteristic of a rescue group that's gonna be successful. The rescue group will need to have tight social bonds among, small, among a small group of members, which will make infiltration and turncoat behavior less likely. Minority groups are often on the fringe of political and social activities. It's more likely for such groups to be unnoticed, to resist authorities, and to sympathize with other outed groups, for example, the Jews. So what Braun finds, and he gets really compelling empirical evidence of this, is that Jews that resided in minority church enclaves were far more likely to receive assistance and survive than Jews who resided in majority church enclaves. The minority church enclaves, the minority churches could survive as a rescue organization because they were minority and it made it possible for Jews in those locales in the Netherlands to avoid capture and survive the Holocaust. Again, another example of how network perspectives are really important for trying to unpack a puzzle of who survived and who did not in the Netherlands during the Holocaust. Now here's another application to a horrible war that played out from 1998 to 2010. It was an internationalized civil war. So it was a civil war within the Democratic Republic of the Congo or the DRC, but some nation states got, got involved as well, so it was an internationalized civil war. What Koenig and others did in their study here is they looked at a network of alliances and enmities between 80 fighting groups active in the DRC over this period. My red ball is back. Um, but what's really important here is civil wars, whether it's the one in Syria or this one in, in the DRC, they involve many armed actors. It's not just the government against one rebel group. It's all of these different actors that network analysis is particularly capable of unpacking and trying to better understand. So here's what Koenig et al. found in their study. The big players in this conflict, Rwanda and Uganda, drove the violence, but a few small players, such as the Lord's Resistance Army, were surprising drivers of violence. You get these percolating, scaling out effects that it can play out across a network uh, that, that means you can't just look at the individual units. You gotta look at how they are networked, in, whether it's an alliance or an enmity connection. They also found that arms embargoes reduce fighting levels for the embargoed groups, but the non-embargoed groups increased their fighting. So the net effect of the, the embargoes was actually negative uh, because though some groups had fewer weapons and could not fight at the same level, other groups substituted in and in a way took up the slack within the context of the network and so overall fighting did not decrease. Third, improved economic particularly agricultural conditions, reduced overall fighting in the network via improved wages for farm workers and greater difficulty of fighting from rainfall. This is kind of a common result. If, if people have good economic opportunities, they're gonna be less likely to fight, at least controlling for other factors. Why fight when we can make good wages from agriculture since we're having a great crop this year and so forth? 
Uh, so they found that result as well. And then they did a key player negative analysis. They found that pacifying the fighting between Rwanda and a DRC rebel group re reduced overall fighting by 6%, even though the direct military operations of the two groups accounted for 1% of the violence. So again, when you get to a network, you get percolating effects through the network that have to be accounted for, and you can get surprising results like this one here. Substantial reduction in overall fighting based on these two groups, even though they, on the surface, didn't seem to amount or account for much of the violence. Let's talk about Al-Qaeda's decline. It's a decline of a network. And Terrorism analysts have, have used network tools and models to try to better understand uh, that decline. Terrorist groups are criminal organizations, so they face a fundamental trade-off between wanting more terrorism production, but they, they have to be secret, and so they face that trade-off. Network characteristics of terrorist organizations, more links, especially in a hubs and spokes, spokes network, can enhance production, just like it helps FedEx it can make the terrorist organization more productive as well. But more links increases the chance of discovery, link disruption, and overall insecurity for the group. So secrecy, sparseness, and temporary links can enhance security for a terrorist network. Lone wolf or small cell terrorists can be relatively secure, but also relatively unproductive because they have few leveraged links in a network. So how have Al-Qaeda's network characteristics changed over the years? Well, Barber did a really interesting study addressing that very question. She started out with some data on who Al-Qaeda was linked to prior to the 9-11 attacks. So for, for the period 1996 to 2000, according to her, network analysis, Al-Qaeda had a hub and spokes network. And Al-Qaeda had the highest betweenness and prestige centrality scores in this network relative to the other actors and terrorist groups it was linked to. So that was the starting for, for her analysis. We then come to September 11th, 2001, this is a, obviously a, a, a notorious event for Al-Qaeda and a lot of other terrorist groups in that region say Al-Qaeda is a big deal. We want to network with Al-Qaeda. They're sort of the terrorism star uh, from the point of view of the terrorist organizations. So over this period 2001 to 5, Al-Qaeda has even higher betweenness and prestige centrality scores. They're getting even more powerful in terms of the network analysis, and more important, in terms of betweenness and prestige centrality. But we know what's happening after 9-11 is US and other countries are now bringing to bear serious counterterrorism efforts. What starts to happen is Al-Qaeda still has a hub and spokes network in the period 2010 to 2006-10, to according to Barber. Uh, Al-Qaeda still has highest betweenness and prestige centrality scores, but they're declining. The attacks against Al-Qaeda and its affiliates are starting to bite, and the power of Al-Qaeda is starting to go down. Now, her study published in 2015, her data analysis ends in 2013. What she finds by the period 2011 to 13 is Al-Qaeda has become significantly degraded. Al-Qaeda's betweenness and pre prestige centrality uh, scores are not even in the top three of the network that it's still a part of. And the network is, is fragmenting here, as you can see uh, in her diagram. So this kind of network analysis and the analysis of the importance of Al-Qaeda that she did shows a, 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 an organization who is growing in importance and power to one that now has been substantially degraded. And lone wolf and small cell terrorism can obviously be dangerous, but they can also represent a degree of success if a terrorist organization is fragmented into that kind of terrorism. That can be a type of success, even though those types of actors can be very dangerous. Byman offers the following to explain Al-Qaeda's decline. 
US-led counterterrorism, including destruction of key players, such as Osama bin Laden, Al-Qaeda's alienation of many Muslims, and Al-Qaeda's clashes with affiliates, especially ISIS. So between Barber and Byman, we have some really good types of network analysis of the decline of Al-Qaeda. Still a threat, still dangerous, but not nearly as powerful or, or important as it was in earlier years. Let me turn to cyber threats. You can see how you know, network analysis, we're going from genocides to terrorism, and now we're going to the US electric power grid. I mean, network analysis can cover so many different areas, not just in the field of conflict economics, but in sociology and political science and the, 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 the sciences themselves and so forth. This is a graph, uh, an image of the US electric power grid for the contiguous states. And I'm not an expert on electricity. As you can see, I'm having problems with the red dots, so I'm not going to be able to get this thing figured out. But what we know is it is a network. We have nodes on this network that presumably are far more important than other nodes on this network. And we can be sure that other actors out there in the world that would want to harm us if you know, recently or somewhere down the road in a possible war, uh, they're going to do their due diligence to figure out what the key player node is or key player nodes are in a network like this. And so that raises all kinds of issues related to security and insecurity. Here are some network perspectives on the US electric power grid. It's a vulnerable network. It was the third most targeted sector in the US for cyber attacks in 2020 behind finance and manufacturing. According to Brad Plummer of the New York Times, quote, America's vast network of pipelines, electric grids, and power plants remains acutely vulnerable to cyber attacks. So I want to talk a little bit more about the vulnerability of this network. First of all, we have numerous actors in the United States and other countries are doing similar things. Focusing on electric grid security, I've listed out a few agencies here. We have state-level cybersecurity agencies. Private businesses and councils are working on these things. But it's very important to, to note that in the United States, the network is fragmented. 90% of power infrastructure is privately held. Uh, there's growing use of internet-enabled devices on the grid. So we got these little web devices that are being attached to various parts of the US electric power grid. They, they can be hacked. Uh, they can be found out and, and potentially attacked in a cyber attack. Government reforms are typically encouraged and recommended, but they're not mandated. And maybe in the future they'll be mandated, but at least as of right now, they're not mandated. So we have a, a, a potentially significant security vulnerability here. So we have to ask questions like, will future cyber attackers undertake a, a kind of KP negative analysis of the US grid. Where are these weak nodes that can be cyber hacked, for example? There are policy reports out there that identify the, the, the vulnerable nodes for the US electric power grid. Here's some sort of free advertising for those interested in attacking the power grid. It's kind of baffling. And this, I, I wanted to say a little bit about the 2010 Stuxnet attack against Iranian nuclear centrifuges. What happened in 2010, uh, almost certainly the United States and I Israel, and you may already know about this, or at least many of you know, the United States and Israel, almost certainly it was them, launched a malware attack against the Iranian uh, nuclear research facility in Natanz. And the purpose of the malware was to get inside the programmable logic controllers that run the nuclear centrifuges. They spin around as part of the nuclear uh, research and weapons process. And the malware is, was designed to make those nuclear centrifuges spin too fast to the point that they broke. Now this is revolutionary, that a computer virus could physically destroy a machine on the other side of the world. This is a big deal. Uh, the ability of malware code to create physical destruction of programmable logical con 
controllers that are used for our electric uh, power grid, that are used on our factory floors that control our traffic lights, not only here but in so many other countries around the world. These things can be infected with viruses to make the red light turn green, to make the power grid run wrong so that it explodes, to make the nuclear centrifuge run too fast. And you can put in code that the screen that the engineers are looking at says everything's fine. This can all be done over networks and over the creation of malware across networks. So these are issues that are really important for security going forward, not only the vulnerability of key networks, for example, in the United States, but other countries, our allies, but also how we need network perspectives, excuse me, network perspectives and, and models to try to better understand these vulnerabilities. I'm going to take a little drink of water and So in the event of a major military conference, this is a quote from Cooper in, a, in an article in 2019. In the event of a major military confrontation between the U.S. and a rival superpower, cyber war operations are a certainty. So it's here. It's here. It's not some future sci-fi thing. It's here now. It's already working itself out. Now let me, I, this, this topic here is, is a more positive topic. I focused on a lot of negativity these last few slides. This is a more positive uh, outcome based on networks. What Jackson and Nye do in this study is they gather data on how alliance patterns in the world have become more dense, have become more richly integrated. So alliance networks have been growing over the last century. And so have trade networks. And in their empirical study, they find that these growing webs of alliances and growing trade networks are correlating to a reduced risk of interstate war. And so let's look at this graph here. I know it's probably hard to see. I did the best I could to create an image of it. But we don't have very many alliances back in uh, 1910. The red ones are multilateral, gray for bilateral, green for both. Not very many alliances back in, in uh, 1910. Fast forward to 2000, we have a much richer web of networks among states in regard to security alliances. And when states ally with one another, they often tend to trade more with one another. So kind of growing alongside of the uh, alliance networks, down here on the bottom, we've got uh, the growing of trade networks between states from 1910 much greater trade linkages now uh, a century later. And what Jackson and I find in their empirical study is that these growing networks between states makes it less likely they're, they're going to fight one another. They find a, a much reduced pattern of interstate wars as we move into recent decades. You know, why fight with somebody when you can trade with them, right? I mean, trade is a mutual gain opportunity. So if, if states are trading more and more, they're going to hopefully, controlling for other factors, be less likely to want to fight one another. And there is empirical evidence of that in the Jackson and study. The last area I wanted to touch upon is one that we're, I think, becoming increasingly aware of with Facebook in the news recently. And, you know, what about negative messaging going over Facebook and misinformation? So information and misinformation across social media networks, very important area. Social media technologies can spread both harmful and helpful messages about people from various groups, which can inflame or dampen anti-group violence, respectively. So obviously, Facebook is, is a social media network platform. Here's an example. In 2018, Facebook posts appeared from pop stars, a military hero, and a beauty queen comparing Myanmar's Rohingya Muslim minority to animals. The source of these lies was Myanmar's military, which set up numerous false accounts. So what's to stop a government that wants to out uh, a particular religious or ethnic group from setting up false propaganda social media accounts and spreading that virus across the Facebook networks. That's what happened here in 2018. 
But it can work the other way. In, in example two here in 2019, 259 Christians were killed in Sri Lanka in what looked like it was going to be a scaling up kind of violence in that country. To prevent a spread of the violence, the government shut down Facebook and other social media platforms until things cooled down. So you know, governments can make it worse, but they can potentially help as well as we see in these two examples. This is, I believe, a fundamental dilemma of the social media age. Social media technologies can bring people together, promote humanitarian concerns and relief, and support commerce, but also stimulate outing and repression of people groups and misinformation. And as a society, we're going to have to kind of figure that out. So that's the last application area that I had. I wanted to finish up. For those of you maybe that are not too familiar with this whole realm of network analysis and network concepts and so forth, I recommend this introductory level book here by Matthew Jackson. Let me see where my little red dot is. Uh, the Human Network, How Your Social Position Determines Your Power, Beliefs, and Behaviors. Hope you don't mind if I plug at the intermediate level my own book with my colleague John Carter. Principles of Conflict Economics, the Political Economy of Terrorism, Genocide, and Peace. Uh, I, I missed something. A war, gen, terror, everything uh, is in the subtitle. Uh, we have a chapter on network modeling in that book. And then we apply network models to terrorism, to genocide, to war, and, and to post-conflict peace building. And there's an appendix in that book on how you can do network modeling with Excel. And then at, at a more advanced level, uh, the uh, Oxford Handbook of the Economics of Networks is outstanding. It's pretty high level, but tremendous uh, articles in that book. The, the textbook by Easley and Kleinberg, Networks, Crowds, and Markets, Reasoning About a Highly Connected World is, is, is really good. And, and I really like the Matthew Jackson textbook. It's at a somewhat high level social and economic networks. These are all good resources for getting further into uh, network analysis. The other thing I'll point out here, there, there are a lot of network software programs out there. Many of them are free. And you know, the, the individual that created the Friends so, uh, Facebook diagram with all the different colors used some, I don't know what software he used, but there, the, the software packages do these types of analyses. You probably have some of these here at Kennesaw State uh, available to you. Uh, and then lastly, references. So I, the, the people I cited earlier in the slides are there. So, so that's what I have. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening to the Bagwell Center podcast. For more content like this, please be sure to subscribe. And for more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit us online at coles.kennesaw.edu econop.